0: Our sermon today is taken from Psalm 32. Here's the Word of God Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones washed, washed it away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you, but not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and brittle, or it will not stay near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy all you upright in heart. Thus says the Lord,
1: Let us pray for the preaching of God's word. Father in heaven, we are so grateful, for Your Word, Lord, that You chose to speak to us in, our, in a language that we understand, in words that we can absorb, Lord, to instruct us and to teach us about the way that we should go. As Your Word is preached today, Lord, send Your Holy Spirit that our hearts may be softened and may hear You, Father, and they may receive Your words and. We may have wisdom as to how we can approach you in a posture that is pleasing to your side. Keep our minds set on you, Lord, that we may have peace this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the hardest things about the Christian life is the necessity of repentance. For as long as we live, we'll all struggle with sin. And how the Christian must respond to the existence of sin in our lives is to repent. But Lord... It can be so hard, especially when the sin that we're repenting of are deep and habitual sins that we've struggled with for years. And it's so easy that we're discouraged in this process of repentance when we find ourselves committing the same sin over and over and again and again. and, And even after, we've tried our very best to not do it. And for me, when I get to this point, the toxic thoughts that my sinful mind produces is, I'm just hopeless. I'll never get over this. And I get so discouraged, and I get basically tired of repenting, such that I just end up somehow trying to live with the fact that I just can't help doing something that I hate. And this is a dark and dangerous place to be in now. In 2020, there are so many things that are wrong with the world, and it's quite easy for us and quite tempting to neglect uh, dealing with our sins because you know we have a lot going on. Especially when it's easy for us to disconnect from the church community, distancing ourselves from God, therefore, leaving sin undealt with. So therefore, I think today it's profitable for us to study closely a psalm that can give us some wisdom about this Christian lifelong practice of repentance that we ought to be doing, Psalm 32. And from it, we can learn at least three things. One, the urgency of repentance. Two, the process of repentance. And three, the result of repentance i repeat that, our three points. First, the urgency of repentance. Second, the result of repentance. And third, the process of repentance. Now, I know that Tezar told you guys last week that we'll be finishing up Romans 5 before we take a four-week break to preach on the Psalms. Well, there's been a slight change of plans. We're actually starting our break this week. And the reason is simply because I felt that the end of Romans 5 Relates closely to the beginning of Romans 6, and it'll be a lot nicer for you guys if they're preached closer together. That being said, let's dive into our passage. Point one: the urgency of repentance. Let me first draw our attention to be the subtitle, I guess, of the psalm. It's called a Mashkil of David. Now, Mashkil is a liturgical term, um, and Jewish tradition widely holds that these kinds of psalms are didactic psalms, meaning that they are psalms that are meant to teach us and give us understanding about something. Well, all psalms do ultimately teach us something, uh, but many of them are more in the form of a prayer to God, or an expression of the psalmist's thoughts and deepest uh, emotions and passions before God. But these psalms are directed towards the listener, with the goal of instructing us. So, what does David, the author of this psalm, want to teach us? We see this immediately in the operative words of verse 1 and 2. "Bless." Now, this word, bless, is a common religious word, and I grew up thinking that it's this some supernatural uh, gift of God. Right? Um, or it could be also some kind of approval, like we ask for um, our parents' blessing, for example, to get married. But if we look at the Hebrew word here, it's translated as bless. It communicates something more like happy or the state of joyfulness. That's why some translations, like the NLT, uh, chose to translate this word as Oh, what joy it is. So, what David is trying to teach us here is how we can be happy. The sort of person who is happy. and How we can be that way too. So, how do we get to this happy place? David mentions that there are three issues that are preventing us from entering the state of blessedness. Transgression, sin, and iniquity. Uh, these three main words are um, the main terms in the Bible that are used to describe the one ultimate problem that we all have, our broken, our fractured relationship with God. And each of these words describe a different aspect or a different angle, a different way in which the relationship is broken. So first, transgression. Transgression is a word that probably we need to look up in a dictionary, but in the Bible it's actually a legal term that that's used, used to describe sin as this... Betrayal of trust or breach of trust right? um, it has to do with the fact that in our sinfulness we have violated the terms of our relationship with God. There is an order of how things are meant to be. There is a law that tells us how we are to behave. There is a relationship that we're supposed to have with God, but in our sinfulness we mess with this order. We broke the law and we fractured the relationship, leaving us both legally guilty and deserving of punishment, also, relational deserving of hostility and wrath for God. So, deep down, because of this, we feel this snagging fear, okay, that we have offended him. We realize that we've done something wrong. And that because of the things that we've done, God shouldn't want to have a relationship with us. The second term here um, that David uses is sin. Sin is another one of these religious words that we use pretty frequently. And most of us probably learned that it is basically something bad that we did. And again, this does not do justice to the biblical concept of the word sin. Because in Hebrew, the word here translated as sin has to do with moral failure. Right? The idea here is that we fail to reach a goal. We have fallen short of the glory of God. And God created us to be something better. For a higher purpose in his own image, upholding higher standards, but in our depravity, we have failed to become the images of God that we're meant to be. In fact, in our sinfulness, we deceive ourselves into self-righteousness, failing um, to live as God designed us to, and instead doing what is right in our own own eyes. So the failure that sin is talking about here is not this innocent failure like missing a free throw in basketball. Because it's not like we took a shot and missed, right? But that we failed the aim at the right thing at all. And when we realize our foolishness, when we realize our mistakes, we're confronted with just how much of a failure we are before God. A natural response to this is anxiety and shame, right? If, it's like if God was your boss and he gave you KPIs and you missed all of them, this looming fear that you're about to be fired. You should be fired, being the image of God. The third term here that he uses is iniquity. Iniquity is another of these words that nobody uses anymore. And in the Old Testament, this word communicates the idea of crookedness. How in our sin, we've distorted uh, our world and our nature as well. It refers to the total depravity that we suffer because of our sin. It's what Romans 1-3 talk about. In our sin, we by nature reject God's revelation to us. And our hearts have been so hardened and twisted by sin such that we can no longer truly discern what is right and wrong. And we end up doing inevitably what is right in our own eyes. We can't help but fall at the sin. So iniquity refers to how God has created us in His image, and he called us very good. We're supposed to represent him in creation. We're supposed to live alongside him. But due to our rebellion, we can now neither be able to nor even want to do that. And we have fallen and become something less. Defective, broken images of the world. And if we honestly look at ourselves, we all know that we messed up. We know that the human race as a whole should be better. And each of us realize and are aware of these lingering destructive habits and patterns of thoughts that have harmed ourselves and those around us. Try as we may to get rid of them. They somehow keep dragging us back down. And friends, this is the Bible's diagnosis on the human condition. How the Bible describes our standing before God because of our sin. And this, friends, is ultimately what prevents us from entering to this state of blessedness, from being happy. And the world solution to this is basically to suppress the angst that we feel, right? That there's something not right between us and God. Like Adam and Eve, when God approached them due to their disobedience in the garden, what do they do? They hate themselves and got leaves to, c- to cover their nakedness. This is what we try to do. We hide ourselves and we try to cover ourselves from others, even from God, and even from ourselves. This is how our spirit becomes filled with deceit in verse 2 sets. right? We avoid admitting our guilt by justifying and normalizing our sinful behavior, making it look okay that we've sinned, pardoning and forgiving ourselves for it. And we try to cover our own moral failures by compensating for them, by doing something that we think counts as good so that we can congratulate ourselves for at least doing something good and not being a complete failure. And we tell ourselves that we're okay and we're not broken and our flaws are not that bad nor any worse than other people because nobody's perfect. And if we know that we can't go on with these flaws and that they're destructive, we tell ourselves we can always get better if we try harder. The reason why this is not a legit solution is because it takes for granted against whom it is that we've actually sinned, who it is that we have problems with, because it is God's law that we broke, God's standards that we failed to meet, God's design that we twisted. So David realizes this, and this is why if we look closely to verse 1 and 2, the solution to our problem is not that we do something to fix it, but rather that God, does something to us. God is the one who forgives our transgressions through sending his son to die on the cross to receive the punishment that we deserve for the sin that we are guilty of so that we would have to be punished. God is the one who covers the shame of our sins through coming in the form of a man and living a perfect and sinless life, meeting, meeting the standards that we were supposed to meet so that God's success be given to us, right? Because of God's righteousness, we can enjoy the benefits of God's um, blessing. Because of his success, we don't have to fail. And only God can look past the brokenness of our, our iniquity and not judge us according to our flaws by making us new, giving us a new heart and renewing our minds. All this, God does through his grace and we receive it through faith. Which is in itself a gift from God. You see, this is why Paul goes in Romans four to justify his to prove his point about being justified by faith apart from works, and if only, if if God, it is is only rather if God had done this for us, can our spirit be free of deceit, such that we can stop hiding, we can come as we are. And draw near to the throne of grace with confidence and receive mercy. Now, if we don't believe in God, it does seem possible to numb ourselves from this angst through his through a deceitful spirit, as we mentioned before. Yet, if we're like David and our eyes have been opened to the reality that God is there, this isn't really an option. And David in verse 3 and 4 goes on to describe what happens if we try to run away from our problems. Verse 3 tells us, David says, when he kept silent, when he tries to ignore the issue, and right? when he tries to run away from it instead of facing it, what happened to him? His bones wasted away. There so was groaning all day long, and his strength was dried up. You see, friends, for those who truly know the Lord and worship Him, sin becomes something that God makes impossible for us to be comfortable with and enjoy fully. So, what happens to us? Is that sin eventually sucks out the joy from our life. And although we might enjoy sin in the moment, the conviction of the Holy Spirit will come. And if we ignore it, life in general will somehow become increasingly more exhausting and draining. It will be this heaviness that's put upon us and it'll cause us to grow and be like, oh, I'm just done with this. See, and now, you know, it might be the case that we got used to our sin and such that feeling exhausted and groaning just seems normal to us. You know, like life is hard sometimes and, you know, we get sick of it. But David knows that this is not supposed to be the case. So in verse 4, we see that David realizes why he feels this way it's because the Lord's hand is upon him. You see, friends, for God's children, the loss of the joy of life is is not the judgment for our sins, but it is God's way of calling us back to Him. In the the stubbornness of our hearts, we still refuse to come to Him. When we know that we need to and we should. And God makes us so uncomfortable that we would want to, we'd be eager to get out of this dangerous place we're in because of our sin. It's kind of like how some restaurants in Jakarta just turns off the AC if um, it's after the last order and they're about to close. So friends, the urgency of repentance is real. It's no joke. Because for Christians, there are really only two options. Either we enter into the state of blessedness by having God fix us. Or we keep silent and continue to waste away until we get so tired of being so tired. So assuming that we prefer the former, how do we go about doing that? Point two, the process of repentance. Right? So having realized that there is this lack of this joy of life because of his sin, that and that this is God's wake-up call to him, in verse five, David tells us what he did to deal He repents. Right? So notice how David relates repentance to the three terms that we talked about earlier. He acknowledges his sin, his moral failures before God. David accepts the fact that he's failed and admits to God just how badly he had done so, becoming completely transparent to God for the things that he's ashamed of. He does not cover up his crookedness. David admits that he is a sinful and broken person, that there's something deeply wrong with him. David does not make excuses for the fact that he has harmed himself and those around him due to his broken. He confesses his transgressions to the Lord. And David realizes this, that against God alone is that who ultimately he has sinned against. So he has communicated how he has betrayed God's trust and how his relationship with God has soured because of his sin. And I think this goes without saying that this is not a fun thing to do. Because it requires us to be brutally honest and specific about our sinfulness requires us to get rid of our excuses and not positioning ourselves as the victim of our circumstances but as the guilty offender, right? And this is especially hard for us here in Indonesia, living in a deeply honor and shame culture, where saving face is a really important thing. So even when we do admit that that we did something wrong, usually it's framed in a way to make it seem like or sound excusable or reasonable that we're wrong. Or we've only it after we've done something to make up for it or believe that we've gotten better. Now, you know, there might be some wisdom in this when relating to uh, other human beings, but we cannot do this with God because God discerns the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. As no creature is hidden from the sight, we all are naked to whom, before him to whom we must give account. There is no excuse. There is no excuse that we can give God for him to pardon us. There is nothing we can do to make it better. So in our repentance, we are asking for mercy and for grace for God to make us better, knowing that we don't actually deserve it. So what David outlined in verse 5 here is the posture of a repentant heart, laying it all out there and being Surrendering, putting yourself at the mercy of God. And when we do that, the Lord will forgive, or more literally, remove, take away the iniquity, the crookedness of our sin. He will remove it from us. Right? As it is written in 1 John verse, chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is why in verse 6. David emphasizes the urgency of repentance when he says, Let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you when you may be found. That if we are godly, if we are aware of our sinful condition before God and understand the importance of being forgiven by him, it is imperative that we come to him expeditiously in this posture of repentance and ask for mercy in our prayers. While we're still able to, we must not delay Now, while it's true that as long as we're still breathing, we still have this chance to come to him and ask for repentance, if 2020, though, has taught us anything, that we can never know how much longer this is going to be the case. Therefore, we can never be sure how long the offer is going to open. It's going to be open. And at the end of uh, verse 6 and verse 7, David gives us an illustration Repentance by alluding to the story of Noah, right? The rush of waters, the great flood um, of God's judgment that came upon sin in the time of Noah. That's what the rush of waters refers to. That there will be a time when God will return to, to judge and cleanse the word, world of sin, just like in the time of Noah. But for those who've been forgiven, we will escape judgment and the waters will not reach us. So David paints the picture of God like the ark that
0: hides and preserves Noah, surrounding him not with the waters of judgment, but with
1: shouts of deliverance. So for David, repentance of life, knowing that judgment will come, then stepping into the ark before the flood destroys. Hence, if we're like David and we're aware of our condition and are savvy to the urgency of the situation, and we have taken the posture of repentance and brought our sins before God, therefore stepping into the ark such that we be able to survive God's coming judgment, what happens to us right now? So point three, the result of repentance. In verse eight and nine, we see a shift where previously David was speaking, but now God is speaking. And God says to the one who repents that he will instruct and teach us in the way that we should go and he will counsel us with his eye upon us. The psalm teaches that, that God is not like this tyrant who's only interested in barking orders at us and then leaving us to do it. God does not leave us alone. He is the guide by our side, right? Meticulously involved in the process of renewing us and our repentance. God is both leading us and walking with us as we follow him in the path of righteousness, instructing us and teaching us of what we should be actually doing to enter and remain in this state of blessedness, where we can have true, lasting, and meaningful joy in life. And he's keeping his eye upon us, even understanding better than we do why we fall into sin. And God patiently and graciously counsels us that we may grow in wisdom, that we'll be more and more able to silence our sinful desires, and put to death the sin that's been leading us astray, ultimately killing us. Because God does not only want compliance, but obedience. Right? This is what the psalm is telling us in verse 9. So bit and brittle is the thing that we put on a horse's mouth and head so that we can control and direct it. Meaning that, because the Lord himself is guidance, we will we'll not be like an animal who needs to be restrained by force in order to conform to the will of our masters. You see, being Reformed Christians, we believe that God is absolutely sovereign. We know that ultimately God is in control of all, of all things, right? And part of this means that by His common grace that God gives to every single human being, He restrains our sin for our own good, to make sure that we don't totally succumb to our sinful impulses and totally destroy ourselves and the world He created. How? Because you see... Um even without God, we can cosmetically look like they were pretty much doing what God's laws demand. But the reason would ultimately be for self-preservation, isn't it? Right? We fear social, legal, and even the spiritual consequences of rebelling against the norms that we're taught with since we were little, that we were we grew up around. And these norms are enforced by cultural political and even religious structures of power that we're under. So, so we live under all sorts of like social norms, cultural expectations, the law of our lands, and even religious institutions. And going against these norms and these structures of power will have consequences. So out of self-interest, right, we want to be able to be accepted and flourish in the society that we're in. We want to avoid the physical and legal penalties for breaking the law. We might even conform to these norms because we believe that there will be an eternal punishment after we die, and there will be consequences for the things that we've done in this life. So we try, to varying degrees, to adhere to these norms. And a lot of times, these norms happen to agree with God's laws. So out of fear and self-interest, you can become externally compliant to God's law. And it's not a totally bad reason to comply, and it usually works for the sake of self-preservation, at least on this earth. But as the Psalm illustrates, if this is the extent of our obedience to God, the extent of our reason for obedience to God, we're only being restrained by animals. Rather, what God wants, what God honors, what pleases Him, is not compliance, but obedience whereby we soberly, intentionally, and happily stay near to God because we know the path that he is leading us on is the path of life. That only near him will we find blessings. And I use this example in my last sermon, and I think this is perfect, so i gonna repeat it. The conversation between Peter and Jesus in John 6, where after difficult teaching that Jesus gave, a lot of his followers left him. Right? And he's turned to his 12 disciples and asked them, So, do you want to leave too? And Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we turn? You have the words of eternal life. You are the Holy One of God. You see, when Jesus asked this question, to Do you want to leave too? He's removing the bit and brittle from them. And his true disciples aren't going anywhere not because of fear, but because they know who He is and there's no place we'd rather be. And this, friends, is where we want to be in our efforts to obedience. Not restrained by force, but willingly there because we know He has the words of life. This is where we can be. We come to God repentantly and allow Him to teach and counsel us. So, what it be then to be near God, right? to have our sins forgiven, to be instructed and to be blessed? What, what is it like? Verse 10 and 11 tells us, look at verse 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds those who trust in the Lord. Now, let me just say first right, that this verse is not saying that the repentant and those who trust in the Lord will be immune and free from sorrows. If you look at the lives of the figures in the Bible and in the history of Christianity, especially Jesus himself, there is plenty of sorrow in their lives. Jesus himself is called the man of sorrows. But what this does, it echoes what it says in Proverbs, right? That disaster pursues sinners. And I think this is pretty uncontroversial, right? Because the more we live defiantly against what God's law is to do what is right in our own eyes, the more we disobey Him, the more broken relationships we have, the more anxiety and fear that we will have. So at the very least, you can safely say that those who trust in the Lord have less self-inflicted sorrows. Nonetheless, there are still sorrows. But though there are still sorrows, those who trust in the Lord will be surrounded by His steadfast love. And this word, if you see this word, steadfast love, these words, in our Bibles, it's actually one Hebrew word. And it's a very important word. It's this word hesed. And what this word refers to is always God's covenant faithfulness. That no matter what, God will always be true to his word and faithful to his promises. And though we may experience suffering, many trials and toils, it is true that God is working all things for the good of those who love him. And it is still true that God will finish the good work he started in us. And it is still true he has gone up to prepare rooms in his father's house. And at the end of this all, we'll return to him. We welcome the glory. So no matter how great the weight or how much we can control, he is the master of our faith and the captain of our souls. So that being the case, verse 11 tells us what we're now able to do because of God's steadfast love surrounding us. Be glad and rejoice because there is no longer any animosity between us and the one who is in charge. He has forgiven our transgressions. We are declared righteous so we won't waste away groaning, having joy constantly being sucked out of our lives where our hearts will be grateful. For all that the Lord has done for us. We'll rejoice. Clinging to God's promises. As our hope. And since God. Has healed us of our waywardness. Of our crookedness. Of our iniquity. And made us upright in heart. The weight. The burden. From the guilt. And shame. And brokenness. Is lifted from our shoulders. And so we have reason. To shout for joy. For the Lord. Has gone before us. And fought. And fought and we have victory in a war we had no chance of winning. Brothers and sisters, this is the state of blessedness, the state of victory, of relief, that David was talking about in verses 1 and 2. So today, if we feel the weight of God's hand upon us, if we find ourselves being confronted with our guilt and we're ashamed and we realize that we're deeply broken, and we're exhausted and drained, this is you. God can now still be found. We still have a chance. So do not delay. Confess your sins. Offer your prayers to him. Let him be Lord of your life. Listen to his teaching and instruction. Let him counsel you. And God's chesed, covenant faithfulness will surround you and the waters of judgment will not reach you so gladness rejoicing and shouts of joy are yours in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven thank you Lord that you have completed by yourself only you alone Lord our forgiveness and our salvation. Father, I pray that you may give us joy, but joy through repentance, Lord, through reconciling ourselves with you, Father. Do not lift up your hand upon us, from us, um, before we repent, lest we harden our hearts. Give us, Father, the perseverance, the endurance, your Holy Spirit to continually instruct and guide us as we strive to repent and to be reconciled to you. We know, Lord, that you already accept us and we are the ones who wander. Father, change our hearts, Lord, that we may not be like animals who need to be disciplined by bit and brittle in order to stay close to you. But show us your power, show us your beauty, that we may willingly
0: and consistently stay with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.